Welcome to Pros Tinted Glasses. I'm Katie. I'm Bailey. And we're finally back. We are finally back, and someone has chosen this moment to like go crazy either above me or like knocking on a door down the hall. So sorry if you can hear any of that. <laughs> this is just a roaring start. We actually recorded the last episode only two weeks ago for you guys, all over a month ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bailey has been traveling, um, and I have been coding up a storm in my coding boot camp, um, and we were not totally sure we were going to be able to get to this episode because my apartment flooded last night. So there's just been a lot of life events happening for both of us. Truly, I went to Europe for two weeks, and it uh, the Sahara Desert wind changed, it blew sand in, it rained for two weeks. I did not get to experience any sun and warmth <laughs> Yeah, that's really unfortunate, but I do really appreciate the picture that you sent the group chat that it just looked like you had like put like the Mexico filter over your picture. Like whenever there you're in a fil- whenever you're in a film and you're in Mexico, like just like everything's orange and like that's the picture you sent us. I attempted to explain the concept of that movie filter to a group of s- people from Spain who don't speak English as a first language. Oh, no. Through a translator who understood what I was saying but hasn't lived in the States for a really long time and thus is not as plugged into, like, U.S. media. Um, Mm -hmm. And then him and I, Midwestern people that we are, attempted to explain the reason that weird colored skies make us uneasy because we are deeply terrified of tornadoes. Um, And that explanation also was, was pretty challenging. So, But you know what? We're here... We've made it, and we're going to talk about something super fun today that I'm sure everyone has been on their mind lately. It's Bridgerton. It is Bridgerton. It is the light that kept us going in these dark, weird past few weeks. Um, Yes. Bridgerton is, you know, just one of the best fantasy escapism TV shows going on at the moment, and we enjoyed it, and we also have thoughts. Trademark. Who's surprised? Us? Thoughts? Uh, but couldn't be (laughs) one thing to note is that I have not read the Bridgerton books. I think it is deeply established that romance is not really my area of expertise. So I have only seen the TV show on Netflix. And I have read the Bridgerton books. I've actually read all eight books twice, I think, but not within the last six months or so. So my memory is going to be hit or miss because as we know, my brain does not retain information. Uh, but there, there, it does retain some information. So I do have some thoughts on like the book to show ness of it all, and it'll be it'll be fun to get Bailey's perspective as a show watcher only. Yes, I'm excited to share my thoughts as a show only watcher. I was at brunch with my friend Emily the other day, and she tried to go into some of the differences and changes because she has also listened to all of the audiobooks. And I was like, no, stop! The pod has to hear it first, then we can do this. <laughs> We cannot bring tainted thoughts to the pod. They have to be real, fresh reactions. Right. I haven't even read Katie's notes. She has them in a toggle. And she's like, did we, Did you review the structure of the episode? And I was like, no, I was afraid of spoiling any reaction. <laughs> so I have not opened the toggle. Now, she did open my toggle, which is labeled Bailey's Empty Head. And the only thing underneath it is something we will get to later. 
<laughs> I'm so excited to figure out what that is. Um, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of bullet points, and I wanted to start with what I'm going to call the white lady caveat. Um, one of my favorite TikTok creators, at Baskin Sons, she is a really wonderful creator. She reviews romance novels in a way that, in like such a like deeply thoughtful way that you don't usually see applied to the romance genre. And so I really enjoy her content. And she is South Asian. And she was talking about how... And she's not the only person that I've seen make this critique, but she's the one that I, I saw first and that most deeply affected me. But she's been talking about how a lot of the like most vicious criticisms of this season are being leveled by white people. Like the harshest critiques, the harshest concerns about like the book to show adaptation um, are, are coming from white people, not necessarily um, geared at the the race changing or anything like that like not necessarily negative towards the sharmas as like a concept but she was talking about how even like the ability to invest in the critiquing of the book to the show is kind of a privilege because we don't have to be so worried about the represent wow we don't have to be so worried about the representation whereas so many south asian people are just like so so deeply excited about this season that because they are seeing themselves on screen as like main love interests um, that they just really, it's important for them as a community for the show to be received well. Does that make sense, Bailey? Yes, I think it does. Basically it's saying that, yeah, no, I'm not going to try to rephrase it because I feel like I will muddy the waters only more, but there's a very valid point there about how um, when you aren't worried about representation because it isn't on your radar or it isn't something that applies to you seeing as the main characters are all the main family that we focus on the Bridgertons. And then also in the books is all white. Then you have a different level that you can look at the content on. And when you are concerned about your representation and that's something that is so important that it becomes much harder to critique some of those other things. So as Katie said, we are coming at this from the view of two white women who do not have to worry about our representation in a show. And we just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. And especially, I just wanted to point out that we are going to critique stuff and we're going to be petty about stuff, but it's all coming like most of our critiques do, I think, from a place of, of love. Like this is something that we really liked and enjoyed. And so we're seeking out ways it could have been better. So this you know, as much as we may complain about stupid stuff in this episode, like we really loved season two, or at least I did. Maybe I shouldn't speak for yeah, Bailey. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, my critiques, spoiler alert, are mainly going to be about the Bridgerton men. So I think we can go ahead and say. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that exactly. <laughs> I'm not, there. there's a lot of things there that I'm not as worried about. <laughs> so all that to say, uh, we love the Sharmas. We love the representation. Uh, we are going to get into our thoughts but overall, I really enjoyed season two, and I think it's it's so important for underrepresented communities to get to see themselves like that. Yes, I think it's... I remember when it first started happening with season one with the casting, and then um, I've tried to keep away from spoilers, but it clearly they did have to change things about the, the Sharmas to make season two work with a South Asian rep, I believe, right? Like the family name. Yes. Well, yeah, the family name has changed... Um, we can get into it more in a little bit. There are some there are some changes that I think are, are like almost universally positive. There's actually one that's like a little baffling, but we can get into it when we get more into book to show changes. Um, okay. 
in case you want to just go into your overall thoughts about the season. And since obviously, since we didn't have a, a podcast to talk about, if you have any season one thoughts as well, I would welcome. I actually I tried to rewatch season one before season two came back out, came back out. It wasn't out in the first place. I tried to watch season one again before season two was released. Uh, but I didn't make it all the way through season one because as it turns out, I really think that the second time rewatching it, I had significantly less patience for the Duke's asshole character. Like, the the character is so self-important and all of that that I'm like, I was very frustrated and I didn't even get to like the steamy good stuff of season one. But I remember when I first watched season one, I really loved it and I was obsessed with it and I wanted a new season right away. So apparently... Um, I just grew up and realized that they wrote the Duke's character to be not a good person. All right, that's fair. And then in season two, I overall really enjoyed it. I felt like the tension was immaculate, so good. But also by the end of it, I was kind of bored of it. I was texting Katie and our friend Emily, not the Emily from brunch, a different Emily. They're both important (laughs) Emily's. Um, and just like, wait, I'm in episode four. Are we ever going to get anyone to realize that like this is a thing yet or whatever? And the answer was a resounding no. Yeah. Emily and I both had to be like, ooh, sorry about this one. Like, this one is a slow, slow burn. Which I would probably appreciate more on paper than I do in a TV show. I need quick action in a TV show. It took me three distinct attempts to watch all the parts of The Last Duel. Mm-hmm. Which is fair. That that movie, I really liked The Last Duel, but that movie is definitely uh, a slower one. Oh, no, I thought it was excellent. I really enjoyed it. I just needed, I could only concentrate on it for so much time at a time. And luckily, the narrative is neatly broken into three parts. There's an automatic built-in break. Yeah, it's extremely good. Back to Bridgerton. Season two was overall very good. The fashion remained immaculate. Mm-hmm. I actually would think, I think most of the fashion improved a lot because I feel like in season one, they were still like sort of pretending that this was Regency fashion. I don't think most of it was accurate or even necessarily intended to be accurate, but it was definitely like very stylized. And I think that season two, they let it, they like kept most of the stylization, but let it become a little bit more modern. Plus everything the Charmers wore was incredible. Yes. I think they fully embraced the like suspension of disbelief for accuracy to regency while keeping the like shapes and motifs of regency a little bit better i don't know historical costume is something historical costuming is something i could spend like a long time on but that i ultimately don't think has like strong relevance to the type of content that bridgerton is presenting there are times where i'm a a big stickler for historical accuracy and things like that and other times where it's like no this is a visual media like where we're enjoying things and the accuracy of their costumes doesn't change the story in any way. Yeah, 100%. They're definitely going for, like, this sort of costuming is reminiscent of the Regency period, but, like, don't worry about it too much. Right. What did you think about it all? About season two? I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. I actually think in a lot of ways it was better than season one. But the so getting into the book to show stuff a little bit, we can go more in depth in a few minutes. But the the most insane thing to me was that they changed 
the plot, like, they, in the book, Kate and Anthony, like, get married probably halfway through. And oh, then, my like, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, oh, my gosh, Bailey, you probably haven't ever heard of this. So I'm going to walk you through the B scene as it was written in the book because it is, like, wild, okay? So the B scene in the movie, right, or in the movie, in the show, Kate gets stung by a bee. We've already established that Anthony has bee trauma because his dad was killed by a bee sting. Capital B, capital T, bee trauma. Bee trauma. <laughs> right. Heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching scene, by the way. Yeah, and so he, like, has a panic attack and she, like, calms him down and it's a really nice bonding moment. And I do actually think that this scene in particular was better in the show. But it, it really fucked up everything that follows it, right? So in the book, that scene happens pretty much the same, except then Anthony, in a panic, starts sucking the bee venom out of Kate's bosom. So he's just, like, sucking on her chest. He's like, he's like, I'm going to save you. I'm going to get this bee venom out of you. So he literally starts sucking on her chest, basically in public. And so people see, and so they also have to get married, just like uh, Daphne and Simon in season one. They did hint at the par. They did hint at the parallels of like Daphne and Simon getting caught, and Kate and Anthony getting caught. Except that you know it was it was just Daphne being like, "Well, it's the same situation because she's a girl," and he's like, "But I'm a man," and I almost <laughs> threw something at my iPad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So I totally understand why they didn't want to go into another forced marriage route, and I think that that was the right choice. And then I think they made several wrong choices subsequent <laughs> to that. Um, awesome. But so, so in the book, they are forced to get married. Also, he's like courting Edwina. He he's like chosen Edwina because she's like the diamond of the season or whatever. Which I don't even think that they use that terminology in the books, but whatever. But he he like they never get that far, right? She Edwina's not like in love with Anthony. She's like, all right, cool. But Edwina in the books is like kind of a like little lovable nerd, and she like kind of has a crush on this other guy who's like a little stupid nerd. And she's like, sure, Anthony's fine. Like I, like I'd be into it. It's okay. But she's not like crushed when Anthony has to marry Kate, right? Also, I have said Anthony and Anthony this whole episode and- because we're American. Yeah, because we're American. I mean... Yep. Sorry about that. Uh, so anyway, so Edwina's not, like, that worried about it. And they get married, but this whole time still, like, Anthony is, like, against love because if you're in love and you die, then you make people too sad. And so he can't get love. Also in the book, a big focal point is that he is, like, his dad died at 38. And I think he's, like, 30 or something. Or he's, like, 28. And he's, like, I've got 10 years and then I'm probably going to die, too, because that's the age my dad died. So he's got this, like, immense fear of death, immense fear of love. So... They get married in this forced marriage situation and then spend, like, the next half of the book pretending they don't, like, ravenously love each other. Oh, okay. So, the te- like, the, the tension is still there, though. Yes. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's the thing is, like, I felt like the tension was really drawn out, but I also think that, I don't know, after a while it just stopped being entertaining. After, like, three or four episodes of, like, okay, we get it, they're very clearly have, like sexual and romantic tension between them and he's still stubbornly going to keep pursuing this with Edwina. I don't know. And that was my problem is that it felt too drawn out, but I can see why they made like changes so that each, each series isn't going to follow like the same exact blueprint, which worked better in serialized romance novels that were released at a different time than Mm -hmm. it does in a 2020 and 2022 Netflix series. 
Yeah, 100%. Like I said, I get why they made the changes. It's just like every single subsequent episode after they like didn't have to get married from the bee sting. And then Anthony was like in more in into Edwina and it's like, okay, well, how are they going to get out of this one? Like, all right, well, he posed, proposed to Edwina. How are they going to get rid of this, get out of this one? And then like, oh, they're like definitely getting married. How are we going to get them out of this one? And then they're like at the altar. And I was like, this seems like, this is like, you're asking me to suspend too much disbelief. Yeah, it's too far. And I feel like. At that point, like they, they make it to the altar. They absolutely have to get married, right? Yeah. And I think that it's leaning too much into the Bridgertons leaving, leading like a charmed, perfect life in like. Next season, I I just assume we're going to see no remaining repercussions from the, like, called-off marriage and then hasty next marriage. Like, we've already been given hints of that. And, and the fact that they were at the altar in front of the queen, even though the queen, like, tried to save face, I just don't buy that that would just, like, go over that well. So it did, and it, it all happened so quickly in the, like, the last episode or the second, the end of the second to last episode, they were finally like, okay, fine. We're getting them together. And then the main part of the final episode was just like glimpses of various times in the future where I'm like, okay, well, we wasted a whole season and we could have had at least one episode of them actually being like romantic partners. Mm-hmm, 100%. And I think that so much of what builds on the book is they're like having to figure out how to be in love with each other and how to be like married as opposed to like they eventually just decide they're in love and then like happily ever after like there's none of that like actual relationship building that happens in the book um that's really good and it also there are a bunch of scenes in the book like there's one in particular where they're already married and i think they probably like slept together on their wedding night because of propriety or whatever um, but they're still pretending that they're not, like, totally into each other. And they're, like, sitting together having tea. And Antony's looking across at her and he's like, I want to have sex with this woman so bad. Like, I love her so much. I really, I want her so bad. He's like, I want to jump across this table and ravish her. And he's like, but if I do that, I'll spill the tea everywhere. So he starts, like, chugging tea so that when he jumps over the table, he's not going to spill tea over everywhere. And this is all, like, his internal monologue. And then, like, as he's guzzling tea, eventually Kate jumps over the table at him because she is also thinking this. And it's just, like, so cute and, like, weird. And, like, they're just little idiots who love each other. And, I like, you don't get that, I don't think, in that the show as Anthony much. That makes Anthony a lot more endearing. Because that's one of the things I was going to talk about is, like, I actually did like him in the first season. Like, I thought he was a stubborn older brother who, like, was trying his best. But this season, especially with the continued insistence, despite every other piece of evidence and discussions with Daphne and his mother that he was going to marry Edwina, I was just like, boy, this is so dumb. And we don't get to see any of the, like, cute, redeeming, funny character moments. 100% agree, except... This is so fascinating. It's probably just because you didn't have, like, book Anthony. But he sucked in season one, like, real bad. Uh, but to, to discuss that, I think we actually have to talk about Daphne and how much she sucked in season one compared to book Daphne. So in the books, Daphne leaned way more into, like, having three older brothers that she hung out with all the time. And so she was a little bit more of a tomboy. She was really, like, popular during her season. But... Um, like her her like season being out which i think in the book it might have even been her second season 
but she was really popular, but, like, all the men saw her as a buddy, right? They were all like, oh, cool, Daphne. Like, oh, we love Daphne. Like, Daphne hangs around with the boys. And so she was just way more, like, she had a lot more, like, sass and gumption, but she was still very much, like, a catch. But the reason she was not catching men was because they all saw her as a friend. Right. And so they made her the diamond of the season in the show, which I get it from a story point like standpoint but they took out so much of her like charm and like you know like tomboyishness almost like even when she punches nigel in the in the show it's like fine but in the book it's like she does not hesitate like she just like knocks it out she's like i know like i have brothers i'm taking care of this you are not coming near me um it's just a lot more like of a of a a more interesting personality i guess than we get in the show and then to go along with that, Antony is still very protective of her, but he also, like, knows that she can take care of herself. And he never in a million years would have forced her to marry Nigel Burbrook. And in fact, like, Nigel Burbrook proposes and Antony's like, absolutely the fuck not. Please leave in the books. Okay, I mean, that's fair. But I feel like they, they took the shorthand on that and just made her, like, the good daughter. Yeah, because it's easier to convey on tell because even in the second season, she's like the perfect older sister. Like she's trying to guide Eloise, like, just do this, just play pretend, just do it. And Eloise is like, I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it d- Daphne doesn't get to ha- be a tomboy or be silly or sassy. She's always the perfect oldest daughter. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, it it works fine for the show. I understand why they did a lot of it, but I think it like as a consequence kind of ruined Antony and made him like as serious and as like, as much as he always took his job as like the family patriarch seriously, it made him like unbearable in the first season. And then he had to kind of, I feel, claw his way back in the second season to being endearing. And I don't think he managed it. (laughs) No. It's the lack of mutton chops. It is. Oh, the mutton chops. I was so sad that they were gone, and everyone on the the Reddit was like, oh my god, thank god the mutton chops are gone. I'm like, you all are wrong. Yeah, for sure. Bring back the camp. I agree. Le- just lean into it. They better bring him back next season when he's not, like, the main romantic lead. Probably. Speaking of the non-main romantic lead, um, Benedict's season is going to certainly be interesting. It is certainly going to be interesting. And I really, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to feel about it because I feel like they are sort of queer coding both Benedict and Eloise. And it makes me real nervous that they're doing this and I don't think they're going to let their seasons play out that way. Yeah, or they are and it's going to be such a break from the book that it's going to be like a thing and it's going to be not good. Yeah, really the only theory that I've seen that I kind of like is that maybe they're going to, like, basically switch Benedict and Eloise's storyline to some degree. Where, like, without too many spoilers, in Benedict's book, he it's basically Cinderella, right? He meets, like, a working class girl and falls in love with her and, like, fuck society, we love each other kind of thing. Okay. And that kind of feels like what they're doing with, like, Eloise and this Theo character who did not exist in the books. Yeah. I was going to touch on how I felt as a non-book reader about the, like, changing the multiple storylines, but we can get there. Sure. I I probably actually won't tell you too much about Eloise's storyline in the books because it is 
a pretty significant spoiler. Um, okay, that's fair. So. I mean, I feel like they are setting her up, but also in terms of like sticking to Regency actuality, like there's no way Eloise would have been able to make the decision to go like so- low society, but Benedict totally could if he decided to. So it will be interesting. Um, I mean, he's doing a really good job of being like the comic relief character right now. Oh yeah, I love him. I'm just, I'm just like terrified as to like where they're gonna take him. But yeah. I'm enjoying him immensely for what he is in the first two seasons for sure. Yeah, it's definitely the way that they are like letting the Featheringtons have more of a role and Eloise doing her own thing and flashing. I can see why they do this for like a mo- uh, TV show storyline. I almost said movie too. Apparently, we're convinced Bridgerton's a movie, um, just because it's more interesting in a show to switch between all these different stories but i wasn't sure how much of like the featheringtons story do you see in the books Mm, pretty much none okay i don't i don't think cousin jack is like a person in the books or if he is it's like minute enough that it does not matter to me um obviously like even penelope being lady whistledown like they don't reveal that until like book four or five Mm mm-hmm I think I think it's at the end of book four because I think that is Colin and Penelope. Not only did they like reveal it, they're now using it to drive a wedge between the characters and really obvious plot points. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, eh. I really don't like it in my in my list. So my list of book to show changes, I had hits, misses, and shoulder shrugs, and the Lady Whistledown reveal happening in season one. I put as like a shoulder shrug. Like, yeah, I don't hate it. I don't love the way they've handled it, but like. I see I see kind of what they were going for, but I really don't like how they've made it affect Eloise and Penelope. I don't even like how they've changed the way that they show Penelope on screen now because I felt like in season two, they spent a lot of time just like watching her watch people walk around parties, which mm-hmm. like if if you want to do that as a narrative device to like reveal who Lady Whistledown is, who Gossip Girl is, you can't then change the way you tell the story you need to keep telling it the same way, but still allow there for watchers or readers to catch glimpses of like this character maybe being nearby without calling attention to them being the one that like witnesses someone leave to go to the Orange Grove or something. Like I felt like at the end of season one, the way that they revealed it was promising. And then by the end of season two, I was like, well, you ruined that. Yeah, I agree. That's such a good point about like changing the way the story is told just because we know the piece of information. And I also feel like I did not think that they did that much hinting in season one, or at least not. I don't think that there was like appropriate foreshadowing. Like, I feel like the book readers who knew it was Penelope definitely picked up on things, but I don't know. You know how I feel about foreshadowing plots. Like they have to be substantial. Again, it felt like two different ways of like showing the character at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Because even re-watching the parts of season one I did, I did not notice anything about Penelope. And at that point, I already knew she was Lady Whistledown. So that was one thing that um, is not under my toggle, but I did want to talk about was, like, the way that they changed the portrayal of Penelope in order to make it more like she's Lady Whistledown. And then I hate that they made it a wedge between her and Eloise when the political radicalness could have been the whole wedge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. It's also just really strange. To, I don't know. Like, Eloise in the books literally does not find out that Penelope is Lady Whistledown until, like, 20 years later or something stupid. Like, 
in all the Bridgerton books, there's like an epilogue. And then like years later, Julia Quinn wrote second epilogues for every book. And those all take place like way later down the line. And like Eloise's second epilogue is when she finds out that Penelope was Lady Whistledown. And she's just like, cool, whatever. Yeah. I Again, like at, revealing it at the end of season one made sense, but I feel like they didn't do what they could have with it. So if we could rewrite Bridgerton as as we are want to do. We so are. I almost wish that, like, it brought them closer together. Like, I almost wish that Penelope, like, enlisted Eloise because I feel like that's the kind of friendship they have. Like, Right. And, like, they're, they were already sort of too portrayed as, like, two sort of odd ducks. And so it would make sense for them to continue to be doing, like, weird things together in the pursuit of Lady Whistledown stuff. It's not, like, the best way of explaining it, but... No, I totally agree. But, like, and if they wanted to drive a wedge between Eloise and Penelope, like, have it come through the season, right? Like, have Eloise actually be, like, getting attention in suitors and have that, like, Penelope get jealous of it. I feel like they kind of hinted at that because Penelope was like, oh, you're not a wallflower anymore. Or, or, like, you're not a wallflower like I am or whatever. But, like, have that be something that we really see happening in Penelope's head, right? Like, Eloise obviously doesn't want the attention, but I don't feel like Penelope, like, I feel like Penelope was like, yeah, I know you don't want the attention, and, like, I'm not jealous until it's convenient for the plot. Right. And then I have been unable to avoid the spoilers of, like, Penelope and Colin being a couple that's just... I mean, they've pushed it pretty hard at this point. Not only have they pushed it pretty hard, but, like, opening Reddit and having the Bridgerton subreddit be suggested because I visited it means that I have seen, like, a post about speculation on their season. And while I really liked Colin in the first season, I really hated the whole arc of him and Penn this season. Revisiting Marina and then, like, it seems like he's seeing Penn again, but then he's like, I would never court Penelope. Yeah, Yeah. I put uh, Colin's whole deal in my shoulder shrug thing because, like... I kind of like how they're trying to show he's maturing. I don't like how they've done it, and I don't think it was successful. I think that's what got me about it, is that I don't think that it landed. I saw what they were trying to do, and I don't think it worked. And again, like, with him, like, outing Cousin Jack Featherington, I think that they just, like, didn't even hint that he suspected him and like did he suspect him the whole time or did he like not suspect him when he was in Mondrich's club and was just like being a dick to Mondrich but then he did more digging like I don't feel like that was clear I feel like he went back to Mondrich later and was like I'm sorry I had to be a dick to you but like that's not how it came across right it feels like you were not suspicious and then you learned I thought the exact same thing the whole him becoming suspicious on Well, actually, just the whole Cousin Jack thing felt so contrived to me, and I felt like they threw it in at the end of the season in order to make there be, like, more direct drama in the Featheringtons' lives, as opposed to actually any farthering the plot at all for any other reason, because they just sent him back to America. Mm Mm-hmm. And she, like, their fortunes are not vastly improved. Like, they can continue to live, but they're not, like, rich again suddenly, so it's just, like... The whole thing seemed pointless and as a way for Colin to falsely redeem himself as like, I believed you, but I had to put on a show to get evidence. As you said, like, I just don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm willing for to like hold out on final judgment about Colin's overall story arc and until and unless Netflix has a Colin season. But for now, (laughs) yeah. 
Yeah. Agreed. It's it's very it's solidly in the shoulder shrug category for me. Yeah. Did you have other like good things that we haven't managed to organically hit on yet? I do. I was going to see if you had anything else and then I was just going to kind of rapid through rapid fire through some of my other thoughts that I wrote down. No, I don't I no, like most of my other thoughts are pretty random. Like we touched on costuming. I was going to that'll come up later actually. You know what? That okay, rapid right. fire. Well, I mean, I'll start rapid firing and just derail me when you have a thought. I always have a thought. I know. You always do. It's what I love <laughs> most about you. <laughs> okay. So this is my book to show changes um, that I thought were hit, thought are hits. And this kind of includes season one. Um, I really like the queen. The queen was like not a character in the books. I think that she adds a really interesting flair. I think she's an interesting character. There are some times when she annoys me, but I think that's a function of her being an interesting character rather than um, like a bad character. So, um, Sorry, I was just going to say like I didn't realize the queen was not necessarily in the books, but I do, I do like it. I think it's a good – they almost feel like interludes when it cuts to a queen scene. Yeah, I really like it. And it feels like a natural interlude and it feels funny that she like, and like natural that she like doesn't have a lot to do. So she's just like really interested in like the lives of her subjects, almost like they're her little dollhouse that she gets to like move around. Yes. So yeah, I like, I like the queen a lot. Lady Danbury is in the books and she is awesome in the books. I think that they've changed her, not necessarily for the better, but in a way that works better for TV. Like in the book, she's much more like scary and standoffish, I think, and a little bit less of like a a girl boss ally. Um, And I think that that it makes her a little bit more fun in the show. Um, Mondrich, the the boxer character, totally new to the show. I think he rocks. I think he adds a lot to it, especially in terms of like seeing someone who's a little bit more working class, but kind of like on the fringe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like trying to break in with his club, um, you know, making some dubious decisions with Lord Featherington. I think that's all really interesting. Uh, similarly, Sienna Rosso, who is Antony's mistress in season one. There were a lot of like mentions in book one of like Antony having an opera singer mistress, but I really liked that they just like flushed out that storyline. I think it really humanized Antony, especially like, as I've said, I had a lot of problems with Antony in season one. And I think that this is kind of what helped rein him back in and make him palatable. I did see a TikTok joking about how Antony got more sex in season one than he did in season two. (laughs) Literally. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Hey, but he did have that whole montage of like leaving coins for the prostitutes in like the first episode or whatever. I know. (laughs) Just picture me (laughs) in (laughs) the Alicante airport in Spain, like with my little beer, just watching Anthony have a series (laughs) of flings. It's like there's an old British couple behind me and I'm just like, "Uh, tilt my screen the other way. So, yes, uh, Sienna is great. I actually, so the Featherington, the Featherington stuff, I like some of the stuff they've added. I like that they, like, have added stuff for the Featheringtons to do. In the books, they kind of were just these, like, quirky side characters that showed up in ugly dresses, which they still kind of are. But, like, I like that they have stuff to do. Obviously, we've talked about we don't love all of the stuff that they have done. Right. Um, Prince Friedrich was a delightful character in season one who is not in the books. Um, I love, gosh, what's the actor's name? Um, Freddy something. Oh, I'm never going to remember. My ability Freddy... to remember. 
Stroma, Freddy Stroma. He is, um, by the way, he's vigilante in Peacemaker also. So talk about range. I need a moment. <laughs> so this is the problem with having no ability to tell actors like apart or the same at all. Like I, I have to Google everybody in every show. I would have never known that. I also was convinced <laughs> for an entire movie one time that this guy was in another movie. He wasn't. Completely different movie. Never seen. Oh, he was in Peacemaker. It was the cop. The guy <laughs> cop. I was like, he's he's been in something else I've seen. He has to have been. He's never been in anything I've seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact. I don't know if this one will blow your mind. Uh, that actor, Freddie Stroma, Peacemaker's vigilante slash Prince Friedrich. Also, Harry Potter's Cormac McLaggen. No, that one makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Prince Friedrich. <laughs> yeah, he rocks. Um, I also really like Genevieve, the um, lady that owns the dress shop. What's she called? The oh, now for her. Now my brain is empty. Um, the modiste. Yes, the modiste. I like her. I like all the stuff with her. She may or may not be like casually mentioned in the books, but I like her like having a char- uh, character. That is one lady whistle down thing I actually did like was I liked that they brought her in and brought in like a layer of deception and coordination and depth to the gossip. Well, and also both ways, right? I liked in season one where she was like a a red herring. I think that made a lot of sense. And then I like that she became involved in season two and like added to the intrigue, like you said. Right. Uh, We've already talked about it, but I like that the B scene not being the thing that forces Canthony to get married. Mm -hmm. um, Because that was just a really weird choice in the books, to be honest. All of the Edmund stuff is great. Edmund being the dead Bridgerton patriarch. That's not necessarily a change from the book. I just think they did a really good job fleshing it out and bringing it to screen. And you really like could feel the trauma that all the Bridgertons, but especially Anthony and, and Violet, had over that. Yeah, I I actually think that the way that they gave characterization through those flashbacks and all of the that was so good. Because it added a whole level to Anthony's entire struggle i guess Mm -hmm. with his his wife choosing yes i really liked all of the early canthony stuff so like the horse race in the first episode was really delightful i really liked kate overhearing anthony like being terrible about how he like just wanted a wife who would like do her duty or whatever at the party i thought that was all like really charming and really set up like a nice rivalry sort of for them yeah I really liked the change about, like, the Sharmas being on the outs with the Sheffields. So, like, in the book, I'm not going to remember it exactly, but it, they were the Sheffields, right? It was Kate right. and Edwina Sheffield. And I like that they added this, like, layer of Kate and Edwina and Mary are so close because they've been ousted from the Sheffield family, essentially. I thought that that was a really nice and interesting layer. I really liked all of the, like, cultural touches with the Sharmas and it just being, like, part of it. Like, it being an integral part of it, but it not being, like, made a big deal out of, right? Like, they were just... It was just a wedding prep scene. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it was it was totally natural and it was really beautiful and I hope that it meant a lot to people um, that identify with that culture. Uh, I liked... So, in the books, Kate is a little bit more of, like, a an insecure older sister figure to Edwina. Like she's still very like bullish onto like, I am here to get my sister married, but it's 
a lot of it stems a little bit more from her own insecurities of like she doesn't think she's like beautiful enough or deserving of like the things that Edwina she feels is is owed by society um especially because she is like a stepdaughter like she's not really like part of that world kind of yeah um and she doesn't think she's as pretty as Edwina and I like that they made her more of just like a mother figure to Edwina like I like that it's much more of a she's like well like our mom can't quite handle it but I can so I'm gonna do it okay um and then I like this is this part comes a little bit with a caveat. I like that Edwina had some agency in the way that she told Kate off. Like in the book, I think I overall like Edwina in the book a little bit better, but I think that she is much more of a prop for Kate's story in the book. Whereas she is also that for a lot of this of the show, but like she definitely like makes her own choices in the end and she like has some attitude about it, which I appreciate. Yeah, I also think that in the first couple of episodes before they really, like the first two, before they really start heavy handing the Canthony stuff for people who haven't read the books, they she does get to be her own person for her own devices, mm-hmm. um, which is presumably like a little bit of characterization that would get lost, yeah, when she only exists to support Kate, Kate's narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all my hits. Uh, actually, you had so many more hits than I thought. I think you've covered, all, like, that and what we talked about before we got to actually looking at your list kind of covers everything that I did like. Okay, cool. Well, then I will slide into my misses. Um, again, a lot of these are from season one. Um, mainly, like, Simon sucks a lot more in season one than he needs to, and it's because I think they, like, don't go into really like how traumatized he was by his father i feel and like in the book he like still has his stutter occasionally if he gets flustered or upset and like daphne has to be like i literally don't care like you're amazing for having overcome it like it's just a stutter and so like that helps to humanize him a little bit like they just don't they're like here's the trauma in his background and then they like don't talk about it again other than him like being a stubborn ass who doesn't want kids because it's more important for him to spite his dead father than to support his wife. Yeah, I think that's part of my problem earlier when I was talking about, like, why I didn't like Simon is because they don't give him the chance to be a good character at any point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this one's a little bit more petty, um, but... Who, like, you? Who, me? But, so she, like, gives these epilogues, and she also has, like, a family tree in the books, and in the family tree in the books... Daphne and Simon have three daughters and then a son. And, like, why did they make their first child a son? Like, for what? Right. I I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's any purpose for that. I just don't. I don't know. I don't know. Um, there's also a scene in the first book where, like, uh, it's after, which also, we haven't really touched on it. I don't really want to go in depth on it. I feel like you can find better opinions than ours other places. But, like, the whole, like, Daphne Simon essay thing is not great in either the books or the show, right? Where she basically, like, tries to force him to impregnate her. Yeah, that's that should have been dealt with differently. It's bad. Um, but moving on. In the book, after she thinks she has gotten pregnant, he's, like, coming down to London to confront her. And she's, like, out riding. And he's like, you can't ride a horse while you're pregnant, you dumb idiot. And so he, like, chases after her and she falls off the horse. And, like, 
she's crying and like he's crying because he thinks that she's like hurt and has lost the baby but like she is she'd already like not realized she wasn't pregnant so she was like out riding to like comfort herself or whatever and so like that's when simon realizes like oh like i was worried that you had lost the baby that i didn't think i wanted so like maybe i do and instead they just like argue for a bit and then daphne's like i'm right and then they have a child and there's no like moment of realization for simon where he like realizes that he wants it too awesome glad they cut that out too wow yeah yeah anyway so that's all the i think that's all my season one things back to season two uh again they just kind of underplay everybody's trauma like in the books kate has really big trauma around thunderstorms and like that scene in the library is much more intimate between antony and kate because he's like comforting her from a trauma um, so I just, I mean, it like, it's a little cliched, but I feel like they could have found a better way than to, like, barely include it. She just, like, shrugs and is like, I don't really like thunderstorms. I think that's the theme here, though, is that, like, the books are able to get into a lot. And this is, this is just a, a media-type complaint, generally, probably. But, like, the books are able to spend more time doing that, and you get a lot of stuff that's not explicitly stated out loud. So it's easier, but I, I think a lot of your misses have to do with them missing internal character developments. I think that's a really good observation. We've talked about a lot of this stuff. Like, I don't like that Edwina was in love with Antony. I don't like that they got all the way to the fucking altar. I thought that was really stupid. I miss Edwina being, like, a cute little geek who, like, just loves nerdy stuff and wants to be a nerd with some other guy. I hate that we didn't get anything post the Cantony wedding um, because that's when so much of the, like, juicy stuff happened like we talked about but again i do i do like that they didn't like force them to get married because of propriety or whatever bullshit right i think it works but i think that it they did miss you know they did miss a little bit but not in a way that like seriously was horrible or whatever it's just like oh if we could have had one more episode with maybe more of this mm-hmm, exactly um and then my last complaint is like it's honestly a little bit subtle i think um i don't i don't know how it came across in the show because i was like projecting my book expectations onto it but like in the book kate and edwina and mary their mother are so close like they're so close as a family unit there is a lot of emphasis put onto how much mary loves kate like she's not her stepdaughter she's just her daughter like they're just a really, really close family. And I think they cooled some of that off a bit. And what makes it even more, like, very strange to me is that, like, you would think that that's something that they would lean into even more now that the characters are South Asian. Because, like, South Asian culture seems, like, very big on family devotion. And so, like, the fact that that was already a character trait and then then they made them South Asian on top of that feels like they would lean into it more I would have thought. So as a TV show only watcher, I just felt like Mary just wasn't there all that often. It obviously, I didn't know that there was that much of closeness between them, but the show felt like it focused a lot more on the closeness between Kate and Edwina and, and Mary was just kind of there and she would occasionally show up when like Lady Danbury needed her to be there. I don't feel like they had Mary there enough, period, to pr- to project that at all. It just feels it feels inexplic- inexplicable that they wouldn't lean into that when it feels like something that would work so much so well with the more diverse casting of the characters. I, I don't know. I don't know. I did not um, write this, so I don't know. 
I don't know. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's the end of my misses, actually. And then I just have one shoulder shrug that we haven't gone over. And that's just, like, Marina's whole deal. Like... Yeah, I... I, I didn't quite get that in season one. I, ju- I just added to a layer of social intrigue and something for Lady Whistledown to make a reveal out of. It's also, I like, I don't want to get into this unless you really want to be spoiled, but, like, her character comes up later in the series, but, like, never having been in the books until then, right? So, like, oh. they brought her in early to fulfill this role later on. It seems very strange. I guess we'll see how it plays out. That's all I can offer, because I don't want to be spoiled. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk about this in, like, four seasons, I guess. Perfect. <laughs> uh, with that, do you have any, like, final overall thoughts about Bridgerton? Uh, hmm. I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. It makes me happy. I obviously had some issues with this season, but overall, like, I like the bright color, happy Regency take on everything. It's just a nice, comfortable show. Um, And I enjoy it, and I look forward to the next season, and hopefully they don't ruin Benedict for me. Yeah, as someone that doesn't typically go for a romance, I do really enjoy watching them on Netflix. I really love as you said, like, the bright colors, I actually want them to, like, almost embrace the camp more like they do with the Featheringtons. Like, I just really want it dialed up to 10. Yeah, I would like that. And then we'll we'll see where the rest of the storylines go, but it, as far as it goes, like, I, I like it. I think they're doing a good thing, and we'll see. We'll see how it continues. Um, and then with that, I think maybe we should play my silly game. Which, as I I'm so excited um, said before, which I alluded to, has nothing written down, has no rules, has no plan. Okay. So, first question: Which queen's wig is your favorite? Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to go look up some pictures. I didn't like. I didn't prepare for this. No, I know. Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want you to prepare for it because I thought that would be less fun. I, no, you're right. But now I, I need to at least pull up some some pictures. Um, I can tell you mine if you want. Yes, I would love to hear yours. Okay, so mine is the purple one. Like, I thought the whole thing overall didn't love anything about it, but I loved, like, the purple wig look. Oh, you know what? I like that it is purple. I don't love the, like, style of that one. Um, but I fully respect your choice. I think mine is, I don't know how to describe it, but she's, like... She's wearing, like, lavender, and then her hair, it's, like, you can see the dark roots, and then it goes, like, straight upwards, and it's all blonde, and it looks like rosettes almost, and there are, like, pearls in it. I'll just send you a picture. I'm just trying to trying to um, describe it for our viewers. I wish I knew, like, what episode she wore it in. Yes, we're doing the um, visual media described over audio media. Got it. I mean, <laughs> Love I, I walked into this. I'm not going to lie, like, when I said this, this question. Okay, I sent it to you. Okay. I'm opening it now. Okay. Oh, I like this one. This one is fun. Okay. Good answer. Okay. Question two. Hit me again. (laughs) Which Featherington dress is your favorite? These are so hard. (laughs) 
Why, why did you choose a visual medium question? I, now I have to like look them all up. You're right. I didn't I'm think really that excited through. For it, it was just like really, they were just like lighthearted questions I was thinking of. You know what? I really love how garish most of Lady Featherington's dresses are. Like, they're just awful, but in the best way. I, I do kind of have to agree because that, I mean, they're, they go all out for hers. They really do. It's the one that, like, so most of hers are, like, yellow with, like, colorful flowers on them. But there's one where, like, the fabric is really, like, stiff and shiny. And I think that has to be my favorite because it's terrible. Yeah, and I remember just, I can't remember which season it is, but she has one that is just, like, viciously green. (laughs) Uh, I love that descriptor. Okay, next question. Okay. Why is Kate's purple dress with the little jacket your favorite dress? Um, Because it's iconic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're done here. We are. It's incredible. I have another question. I just knew there's, there's no other... The purple outfit, it, it's perfect. Um, yeah, it is. If you had to play Paul Mall with your siblings, would you win? You know what? Me and, and David would, and actually I think Tara, my sister-in-law, I think that the three of us would go all the fuck out. And then uh, Steve and his new fiance would be like looking at us like insane people from the corner. Um, I do think I would win though. I think I could. Okay. All right. What about you? Oh, my family has never met a competition they did not take too seriously. <laughs> um, when we went axe throwing, my brother mastered right-handed so easily, he started playing left-handed. He mastered that. He started oh, playing yeah. underhanded. So suffice to say that if I were playing anyone but my siblings, I would probably win Paul Mall. If I was playing my siblings, all of us would lose. But to be clear, my brother would probably technically win. But just a reminder, we've all lost for the way we've acted here today. <laughs> Ooh, uh, follow-up question. What color mallet would you use in Pall Mall? Mallet of death. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only choice. I probably would get the pink mallet um, and rehabilitate its image. I would probably actually get stuck with the blue one and be like, not mad about it because I really like blue. But there's, again, there's no <laughs> way I would like win the race to the mallet picking. So... That's fair. Unfortunate, but fair. And there would be at least one ball taken by a golden retriever. (laughs) As all balls should be, to be honest. (laughs) Truly, who are we to keep them from the dogs? (laughs) 100%. I actually don't have any more questions. Those are the only ones I I came up with, but... (laughs) They were they were very fun. I wish like I wish there would have been a way for you to not spoil it for me while also letting me like prepare by thinking about the outfits ahead of time. Because I would have had more fashion questions if that was the case, but then you would have been speculating and you would have predetermined how you would answer questions you were anticipating. You're right. There's really there really was no better way to do it, but um, they were very fun. So thank you for putting together your silly little game. No problem. I really just thought of it like right as we were getting ready to record. And I was like, this is going to be fun because normally it's you who has the little games or you who ask yeah. me questions. So I was like, we should I should ask you some some show based questions. I love that. Good job. I'm proud of you. Thanks. Uh, I guess we'll see you guys next time Bridgerton has a season. Yeah, I'm sure it'll probably be in like a little over a year because that's how long TV takes to make these days. Yeah, 
Are you reading anything right now? Uh, I did actually. I started my first book in like a month. I I started um, Portrait of a Thief by Grace Dealey, which I think I've recommended to you a couple of times. But it's a bunch of Chinese college students, like Chinese American college students, who basically get like hired to like steal back Chinese artifacts from Western museums. So it's pretty exciting. Okay, nice. Yeah. What about you? What are you reading? Um, I also didn't read a book for like a month, and since then I have listened to Horror Store by Grady Hendrix, Down the Rabbit Hole by Holly Madison, two farther away audiobooks we could not perceive, and um, I'm reading The School for Good Mothers, which is a dystopian novel about social workers and motherhood in America, especially for immigrant children. Oh, that feels like it would make me want to on a live yeah, it's taking a while. Anyways, <laughs> Horror Store was definitely interesting. I'm so interested that you listened to Horror Store because I feel like the appeal of that book is that it looks like an Ikea catalog. There is definitely, there are some aspects missing from listening to it because there are different um, store items that are described in interludes throughout the book. And the gotcha. audiobook does it really well in that it's another narrator and it sounds like a commercial for the product. But as Mm -hmm. I understand it, in the book, it is actually, like, the diagram and, like, Mm -hmm. the directions or whatever. And that would have been interesting. But also, I'm not sure I could have handled the the gore level reading. That's fair. How did you like it? Because I I am not the biggest fan of the other Grady Hendrix book that I've read. Um, it was good. It was a very short listen. I think it was only, like, seven hours. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. So, it... I was like, oh, this will be a good, just thing for me to listen to to get going in books again and I wouldn't say it was like my favorite but I didn't have like a visceral hate reaction or or anything it was was just like a horror novel and I was reading a review and it was like where is the comedy I was like the comedy is in the the concept there's not like the point as always (laughs) because we are right and we should say it pour yourself a glass of wine Let's start reading in between the lines Never know what we might find Yeah, it could be magic Oh, oh, oh Pro's Tinted Glasses is hosted by myself, Bailey Utrecht, and Katie Phillips. Our logo is by Baby Truth Collections, and our theme song is by Anna Voss. Go check them out. If you could rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify, That would be amazing. Apple Podcasts, not iTunes. Anyways, see you soon. Bye.